0: be seated, if you will, open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. (laughs) So we uh, completed a lengthy three-chapter study related to Christian liberty. And as difficult as that subject matter was, and as challenging as portions of that those passages of scripture were, were in a sense jumping out of the pan and into the fire as we began in chapter 11 and looking at the topic of authority and subordination. So this is another incredibly difficult passage of scripture for two reasons. One, the subject matter is very difficult for us and also because there is an incomplete understanding of the specific cultural dynamics of the Corinthian church And that makes understanding with great precision exactly what Paul means a little bit more challenging. So this passage deals with the roles of men and women. And that is not a popular passage in light of today's pursuit of equality among the sexes. You don't have to look at the TV or the newspaper or listen to the radio very long to see that women are demanding equal pay and equal access and equal rights and equal everything. So as we look at this passage of Scripture, critics will argue that this passage oppresses and controls women and stifles their contributions and their capabilities within the church. So any time we come to a passage of Scripture that will challenge us personally and will contrast with our cultural practices, I think it's important that we remind ourselves of the eternal inerrant nature of Scripture. So, is Scripture inspired by God? Is all of Scripture inspired by God? Is it just the parts that we understand or that we agree with? Or is it all His Word? Is it perfect? Is it trustworthy? Is it reliable? Does God's Word transcend time and culture? Do the writers of Scripture inject their own personal bias and opinion into Scripture? These are the challenges that we always have to ask ourselves whenever we encounter a passage of Scripture that challenges challenges us personally and contradicts the direction that our culture may be going. So as a reminder of what we believe to be true about Scripture, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture, not most, not parts, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for what purposes? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. To what end? So that The man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. These are the words of the Apostle Paul. Peter would write in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So either we believe it's all true, or we are going to be guilty of getting scissors out and cutting out the portions that we don't like that we don't understand, that we don't agree with, and that's not reasonable, and it's not proper for Christians to approach Scripture that way. So because Scripture transcends time and culture, we must remember that Scripture will correct unbiblical culture, especially on issues of immorality and idolatry and practices in worship. So we have to ask ourselves, does this passage address a specific principle, or is it speaking just to an isolated cultural experience within the church at Corinth? Well, the answer to that question is yes, it does both of these things. It states a principle while it is addressing a cultural practice within the church of Corinth. This is complicated because we don't have a complete understanding of the specific cultural details that Paul is addressing at the church in Corinth. So the principle stated is abundantly clear, and how it is being applied to the specifics of the culture is not quite as clear, which makes it difficult to understand with great precision exactly what Paul is using as an example or an illustration of the principle that is not being followed. So to further challenge your understanding of the passage, there's a mixture of literal and metaphorical language, and it's sometimes difficult to know the difference between the two. And so structurally, this passage that begins in verse 2 and goes all the way through to 16, it begins and ends with an appeal to what is customary and acceptable, the The principle of headship is established in 11.3 and it's balanced by the principle of interdependence between man and woman in verses 11 and 12 and then in the larger middle portion of verses 4 through 10 it describes behavior and worship that is shameful to one's respective head and sets forth the obligations of both men and women in order to avoid such behavior. This is the part that is especially challenging because it's speaking to a cultural practice that you really can't say with precision that's what he's talking about that's what that means there's an allusion to things that we may or may not understand properly but we get bogged down in the cultural application and in doing so we totally disregard the clear principle that is stated. So we're going to read the entirety of the passage which is going to begin in verse 2 and go all the way to 16 but we're only going to get to verse 3 today but as we go through the entire passage you'll understand the complexity and the challenge that exists in breaking this down. So beginning in verse 2 Now I praise you because you're Remember me and everything, and hold firmly to the traditions, just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as a woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman who is the glo- but the woman is the glory of man. for man does not originate from woman but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as a woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God." You got it? (laughs) So the, the, the clarity of the principle is lost to us because of the challenge of understanding, with great detail, the cultural practice and norms and expectations of what was taking place in the church in Corinth. Now, as a way of reminder and as a segue into what we're looking at, Chapter 10 concluded with the exhortation in verse 31, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Now, we are often guilty of taking verses like this out of the passage and out of the book and letting that verse stand alone as if it doesn't apply to anything said before it or to anything that is going to be said after it. So this lengthy section that we looked at, three chapters that dealt with Christian liberty, this exhortation to do all for the glory of God is a capstone to what Paul talked about in that section, as well as dealing with issues of idolatry and immorality, and all the way back in the beginning, dealing with divisions within the church. Let all that we do be done for the glory of God. Well, as that serves as a capstone to what was said previously, It serves as a foundation for what is still to come. Let all that we do in our worship services, in our gatherings, be done for the glory of God. Now he will deal with behavior in worship services and most specifically we're going to look at the practice of communion and how that wasn't taking place the way that it should and also a very lengthy passage on the usage of spiritual gifts which also wasn't being done the way that it was supposed to be done. So this section begins the address of appropriate behavior in worship and this is going to think I'm going to have six pieces to the outline. And so very quickly number 1 in our outline is is praise for holding to traditions. Verse 2, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So this is a very rare and a very brief word of praise to the Corinthians. His instruction to this point has been very forceful and his disappointment disappointment with them has been very, very clear. But here he mentions a word of praise. So this praise will precede instruction to correct improper, improper practices within the church. Now it isn't clear exactly what traditions Paul is referring to, but it's believed that Paul is addressing the tradition of the Lord's Supper, which we're going to look at a little bit later in chapter 11, verses 23 to 26, and also the reception of the Gospel message, which we'll look at in chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. So in the context here... Because Paul has mentioned traditions, it refers to the roles of men and women within the church. So tradition means that which is passed along by teaching. Traditions can have both a negative and a positive meaning. When tradition becomes traditionalism, it probably is going to become negative. But tradition is fairly neutral being used both negatively and positively. For example, Jesus used the term negatively when addressing the legalism of the Pharisees. He would say in Mark 7, 8, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold... To the tradition of men. So you see the contrast there. You've set aside the commandments of God and you've put in place of it the teachings of men. That can never ever happen, and that should never be taking place within the church. But here Paul uses it positively that they are adhering in some form or fashion to what he has taught them, although their practice requires. Correction. Now, number two in our outline, we're going to spend the rest of our time here today in this, and that is the principle of headship. Verse 3, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every, every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So Paul begins this principle by saying, I want you to understand, and this is a way of alerting his hearers that what is about to follow is incredibly important, and this is the piece that you are missing in your practice. This is a divine principle It is a timeless principle. And therefore, it is an unchanging principle. Now, let me ask you a question. If it is a divine principle, can culture erase it? Well, no. Culture can't erase a divine principle. Why? Because it has its origin in the person, in the heart, in the mind, in the purpose of God. So how do we know that this is... A divine principle that Paul is giving to the church in Corinth here. And that is by examining objectively what Paul says. So with this one sentence, Paul outlines the principle of authority and subordination which pervades the entire universe. So before we get too far into this, remember that in this culture, women lived in the background. They were a little more than they were considered little more than property. They had virtually no rights of any kind, and many in this culture considered prostitution to be the greatest contribution a woman could make in society. Can you imagine such a thing? What a what a horrific view of women! But the gospel gives dignity and honor to women. As do the writings of the New Testament. For example, in Galatians 3.28 written by the Apostle Paul, there is neither, excuse me, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is not a hierarchy of superiority and inferiority of importance and a lack of importance of first class and second class. It doesn't exist. There is equal footing at the cross. And this is something that was not practiced in religion in this culture and probably not in any culture leading up to the revelation of the New Testament. Paul would also go on to say in Ephesians five twenty five, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself up for her. Now I can absolutely promise you this, that when the churches of Macedonia and others would would hear these words and listen to them being taught, they would be going, "What? I gotta love my wife like what?" So when did this happen? I, did I miss the memo? This isn't the way our culture works. This isn't the practice. But there is dignity and honor given to women from the Gospel and in the New Testament writings. Now, in my opinion, two of the most shocking events that are recorded in the Gospels record Jesus' interaction with two specific women. In the first... Jesus encountered the woman at the well, the woman of Samaria... Who had been married five times, and at the time she met Jesus, was living with a woman who was living with a husband with the man who was not her husband. And this, and in this encounter, Jesus, a Jew who would never ever speak to a Samaritan, engages her and speaks to her these words of life. And the result of that is recorded in John four thirty nine. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. You see, when Jesus encountered the woman at the well, who by most society standard would be pretty far down on the list of nobility, think about this: a woman in our culture who had five husbands and was now living with a man. What would we think of such a woman? We'd be challenged, wouldn't we? It would be real difficult to think of this person as having great value and great dignity and great honor. And yet that's exactly the way Jesus dealt with her. He didn't sit there and wag a religious finger at her. He didn't make her feel bad about her circumstances. He simply said, the one that you worship is me. I am here. And it absolutely changed her life, and it changed the city that she came from. Now, in the second encounter, the Pharisees had allegedly caught a woman in the act of adultery, and they drug her before Jesus, and they challenged Him, what would you do, knowing that the Mosaic Law required for her to be stoned? And Jesus responded, He who is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Now what was Jesus doing? Was He saying adultery is okay? was he saying well you know it's not that really big deal you don't know all the circumstances around this I'm going to give her a free pass on this that's not what he was doing at all he knew exactly what the Pharisees were doing he knew exactly the predicament that this one found herself in and he did not sit there and embarrass her in front of all of her, all of her accusers he challenged those who were accusing her those of you that are without sin let you be the first ones to throw and when they all disappeared what did Jesus do he said go and send No more. So the Bible, the Gospel, the New Testament shows great honor and dignity and value to women. So the principle of headship is not about the inferiority of woman, nor is it an attempt to suppress the rights or abilities of women. It is simply a biblical expression of roles and responsibilities, of authority and subordination. And by the way, nobody likes authority and subordination. Nobody. I've never met anybody who said, Oh, you're my boss. I love that you're my boss. I love the fact that you're going to tell me what I can do and what I can't do and when I have to be there and when I have to go home. I love that you're going to be able to rule it over me that way. I've never met anybody like that in my life ever. Nobody likes authority and subordination. Now, the word head means the ruling part of the body. So in a very literal sense, the head is what rules over our physical bodies. Now there's a lot of analogies that I, can, that I can supply here, but they will communicate things that I don't intend to communicate. But let me ask you this. What happens when you remove the head from any living being? I mean, it just, it's just not the same, right? It, it's just not going to make it. And so, the head, in a literal sense, is what rules over our physical bodies. So, this is both a literal and a metaphorical explanation of the principle of authority and subordination. Now, Paul is going to give three examples of how this is true in the metaphorical sense related to to roles and hierarchy. Number one, he gives the example, Christ is the head of every man. Now, nobody will argue that point, will we? Nobody would say, now wait a minute, Christ isn't my head. After all, I've read every book in the Bible many, many times, I can recite long passage scripture, but nobody can say that. Nobody would ever challenge the fact that Christ is the head of every man. He is the Lord of every man, of every person, whether they acknowledge his lordship or not. In fact, in Matthew twenty eight eighteen, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. What does that mean? It means that every ounce of authority that has ever been distributed in this universe rests within Jesus Christ Himself. And we'll go on to say in Hebrews 2 8, you have put all things in subjection under His feet, the Messiah, for in subjecting all things to Him, He left nothing that is not subject to Him, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to Him. That's our tension, right? Jesus is the Lord of all, yet we don't see that Lordship lived out in every facet of our lives, and every facet of the world that He rules over. We read this in Philippians 2, 10 and 11. I didn't make it, I'm sorry. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So very clearly, Christ as the head of every man, reflects His authority over man, and man's subordinate role to him, So Paul is using a literal and a metaphorical explanation of authority and subordination. Not only is Christ the head of every man and of every person, but the Bible also says that he is the head over the church. That didn't make it there either. I told you how to recreate all this. There it is. And He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him, who fills all in all. So, who does the church belong to? It belongs to Him. It's not my church. It's not the elders' church. It's not your church. It's His church. He is the authority. We are subordinate to His authority. We are His body. We are not His head. Christ is the head of every man. The first part of the divine principle is incredibly clear. Christ is the head over every man in the church. And nothing, nothing ever will change that. It is a divine principle that is etched in stone. And we don't have the ability to erase that Or to put an asterisk and make some kind of an exception to that. It's just the way that it is. Now, number two in this metaphorical explanation of the principle is man is the head of a woman. Now, I can promise you that there are women in the church who hear this and immediately the hair on the back of their neck stands up and they grab the pew and they go, wait a minute, I don't like this, I've heard this before. But we need to understand what Scripture is saying. So this role of authority and subordination is now applied to the relationship between men and women. Now obviously, this is in contrast to our modern culture, especially with what we see as, in many circles, an over-pursuit of feminism. Now, I don't want to create the perception that I think that women are inferior. But you know, in the last 30, 40, 50 years, probably since the 60s, there's been this constant push of women's rights and women's agenda and all of these different things. And so we have tried in our culture to make a gender neutral experience between men and women. Now, do you think I'm exaggerating? Have you heard the word binary? Do you know what that means? It means that you may have been born a biological male, or you may have been born a biological female, but you don't identify with your biological birth. You're binary. What does that mean? It means you're not a man, you're not a woman. Then, then what are you? Well, I have the capacity to... Da, 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 da. Yeah, but, but what are you? I actually had this conversation in the, uh, in the virtual platform is that there are two sexes, male and female. That's how God made us. There's no more. Well, there's two sexes, but there's many genders. Well, wait a minute. So you're redefining what gender means. Gender doesn't mean male-female sex. Gender means whatever you want it to mean. So now in our schools, we have this intentional instruction that wants to create gender confusion So that if you're born a biological male and you're confused about what that means and how that feels and what you do, you'll begin to think that, well, maybe I'm not really male, even though I'm biologically male. And the same thing goes for female. Did you know that in the state of California, I think they offer you seven to nine different gender identities? Male, female, binary, X, Y, I. You've heard of LBGTQ? Well, they can't stop there. So it's LBGTQ+. For what else we can figure out along the way? You see, there's an intentional movement to, to make no roles, no distinctive differences between male and female. And you know what happens? This takes place within the secular culture for decades and decades and decades. And pretty soon, it comes into the church and the church begins to say, well, what about that? I don't know about that. What does Scripture say about that? Well, that can't be what that means. And pretty soon, you have within the church that professes to be evangelical, that God is sovereign, God is in control, the war is infallible, that you're not male nor female, you're whatever you identify yourself to be. And we we completely strip away the intentional creation of God in making male and female with specific roles and responsibilities that do not communicate superiority and inferiority, but just distinction. Now, the role that Paul mentions here that the man is the head of every woman, is explained in a little bit more t- detail in verses 8 and 9. So look down there with me and what this says. Verses 8 and 9, For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Now, what is this an allusion to? This is an allusion to Genesis chapter 3 where God had fashioned a man out of the dust and Adam sat there and named all of the species and he got to the end of the line and he goes, Huh, something's missing. Where is my companion? I don't have a companion. And so God put Adam to sleep and took a rib from his side and from that fashioned a woman and it is the creation order that God designed from all the way back to the beginning. And so this is another, one of the reasons why we can say that this is not a cultural teaching specific to the church at Corinth, but it speaks of a divine principle as it relates to the creation order. This is the way God planned it. It's the way He created us. It is the way He has made us and this intentional design for understanding our roles. Now, Let's look at this in more helpful terms so that it doesn't communicate understandings or conclusions that I'm not saying. So authority and subordination have absolutely nothing to do with personal worth, ability, intellect, or spirituality. Both as human beings and as Christians, women in general are completely equal to men spiritually. The footing is leveled At the cross. I mean, there's no distinction. So some women obviously are even superior to some men in their abilities, in their intellect, in their maturity, and in their spirituality. One of the great challenges that I have is that God has called men to be spiritual leaders, yet He's wired women to be more spiritually inclined. Well, that seems backwards, right? No, because that's a challenge to the man to be who God created him to be. So God established a principle of male authority and female subordination for the purpose of order and complementation, not on the basis of any innate superiority of males. I think there's a reason why men have been compared to apes by women. You know, we don't always exhibit the most noble traits in our personal hygiene and the kind of the way we do things and in our mannerisms. And, and our wives will look at us and shake our heads and go, How do they ever, ever marry a man like you? Well, we're not sure, but thank you for doing that, right? So it th- has nothing to do, do with the innate superiority of men in general. So as an example, an employee may be more intelligent and more skilled than his boss, can you identify with that? But a company cannot run without submission to proper authority. Even if some of those in authority are not as capable as they ought to be. You got a boss like that? Somewhere back in history, how did you ever become boss? Who do you know? Are you related to the to the family that owns this company? That'd be some of the conclusions that we might draw. So, for example, in the church, elders are to be chosen from among the most spiritual men of the congregation, but there may be other men in the church who are even more spiritual. Yet for the very reason that they are spiritual, those who are not in positions of leadership will submit to those who are. Now, to say that another way, I consider myself to be an incredibly spiritual person, and I look at the list of elders that are in our church, and I think I'm far more spiritual than them, but I'm not an elder, so I need to submit to their authority because that's the way God has designed it. So a church may have some women who are better Bible students, better theologians, better speakers than any of the men, including the pastor. But if those women are obedient to God's order, they will submit to male leadership and not try to usurp it simply because it is God's design. Now, in the home, a wife may be better educated, better taught in Scripture, and more spiritually mature than her husband, but because she is spiritual, she will willingly submit to him as the head of the family. Ephesians 5, 22 and 23, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And I'm sure there's some women who read that with their teeth gritted. I don't want to do that. That's not right. You just don't know my husband. Yes, God knows your husband. He knows him very, very well. And He knows all the husbands like them. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, He Himself being the Savior of the body. So as difficult as it may be to live out these roles, God has defined them and expects them to be followed. In fact, we would read in the book of Isaiah, probably a not often quoted or referenced verse, the prophet writes, speaking for God, O oh my people, their oppressors are children, and women women rule over them. O oh my people, those who guide you lead you astray, and confuse the direction of your paths. And so what Isaiah was talking about is young boys... ...who are allowed to ascend to the throne... ...and the Queen Mother who is ruling over the people... ...and the the rulership was not what God had designed... ...and God was not pleased... ...and this is a part of Isaiah's lamentation... ...as expressed here in Isaiah 3.12. So in a culture where women are oppressed... ...where they are belittled... ...where they are considered inferior... Scripture teaches this as an improper expression of authority and subordination. As already noted, husbands are to love their wives. How? As Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He sacrificed Himself. He gave Himself up for the church. And so this is the model of with which men are to love their spouses. They're not to abuse them, control them, manipulate them, or treat them as inferior beings, but they are to honor them and esteem them as fellow heirs of grace. Now, the third example of this metaphorical hierarchy. Number three, God is the head of Christ. So as we examine this, we need to be very clear with what is and with what is not being said. Jesus made nothing clearer than the fact that he submitted himself entirely... the Father's will. When we studied the Gospel of John, we would hear this over and over and over. It's not my will, it's His will. It's not my words, it's His words. It's not where I want to go, it's where He sends me. It's not what I want to do, it's His plans and His purposes. We see as an example of this in John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own initiative as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just Why? Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Christ has never been, before, during, or after His his incarnation, in any way inferior to the essence of the Father. That's why we call Jesus the God-Man. He was equal with God in His character, yet God sent Him to the universe to be a man, God, God Jesus never set aside his divinity in order to become a man but when Jesus came to the earth he subordinated himself to the authority of the Father in order to carry out the plan of redemption. in his incarnation he willingly subordinated, subordinated himself to the Father and to fulfill His role as Savior and Redeemer. He lovingly subjected Himself completely to His Father's will as an act of humble obedience and fulfilling this divine purpose. Now, Jesus was not a created being with God as His head. Jesus is an eternal part of the Godhead who temporarily set aside His position To do the will of the Father. Does this make Christ inferior to God? No. Does this make God superior to Christ? No. It just means that Jesus came to the earth in a temporary subordinate role to the Father to carry out the plan of redemption. It communicates eternal divine principle that has nothing to do with value or ability, but simply roles that reflect authority and subordination. Now think about it like this. If Christ had not submitted to the will of God, then redemption for mankind would have been impossible. We would be forever hopelessly lost without any remedy for our sin problem had Jesus not willingly made Himself subordinate to the authority of the Father. So whether on a divine or human scale, authority and subordination are indispensable elements in God's order and plan. Here, Paul inseparably ties the three aspects of this principle together. As Christ is submissive to the Father... And Christians are to be submissive to Christ. Women are to be submissive to men. You cannot reject one part without rejecting the others. Paul put the submission of women to men between man being subject to God and Christ being subject to the Father. You cannot, for example, reject the principle of women's submission to man without also rejecting Christ's submission to the Father and a believer's submission to Christ. You can't pick and choose or cut and paste what you like and what you don't agree with. It's clear that man's being head of a woman means the same thing as Christ being head of a man. That is, sovereign leadership requiring submission that recognizes the benefit of such leadership of love. The authority and submission in each of these cases is based on love, not tyranny. Now, I would imagine that just as often as a woman would read the verses that relate to her submission to her husband, and not enjoy that, men would read the verses about loving their husbands as Christ loved the church, and saying, I don't like that too much either, but you are to, to submit to me, and, and you're going to do that you know, one way or the other. It's not tyranny, it's love. You lead in love, you submit in love. The Father sent Christ out of love, not under compulsion, to redeem the world, and the Son submitted to the Father out of love, not out of compulsion. Christ loves the church so much that He died for it, and He rules the church in love, not tyranny. In response, the church submits to Him in love. Likewise, men in general, and husbands in particular, should exercise their authority in love, not in tyranny. They do not have authority because of greater worth or greater ability, but simply because of God's design and loving will. Women respond in loving submission as they were designed to do. This is not a matter of relative dignity or worth, but of task and responsibility. Aren't you glad you came to church today? You know, we're not going to like everything that we hear in Scripture. But just because we don't like it doesn't make it less true. It doesn't make it less binding. You know, one of the familiar sayings, I guess, is that, you know, what do you call something that has two heads? Uh, You call it a monster, right? Well, I don't want to communicate that that's what happens if, if a woman takes the leadership responsibility, but it's not the role, it's not the task that God has set in place as communicated through this divine principle. In the examples that are given, especially when you tie it to the creation order, that doesn't make it culturally subjective, it makes it a divine principle. So we have to challenge ourselves in the way we deal with, the way we accept these things that we don't like, that we may not agree with, that rub us the wrong way, that are contrary to everything that we've ever been taught. But that's why all Scripture is inspired by God, for teaching, correction, reproof, and training in righteousness, so that every man would be equipped to do the work that God has called them to do. Let's pray.